Welcome back again, friends. This is our last session, number 13. It's actually a continuation of the previous one, but we've come to the final one. I wonder what you're thinking about what we've done so far. I hope you'll continue to keep your mind clear and open and accept whatever information that really is credible. So we're going to continue the previous uh, section, the previous topic, and this topic now is if the resurrection story is true, do we have some evidence available to weigh out and evaluate? There are three. Number one, the after effects. Number two, eyewitnesses. And number three, deathbed confessions. The after effects. Two types. The changes in the disciple and the fact of the Christian church. The change in the disciples. Perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection, says Stott. And Anderson continues to speak on the same topic. A little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence. What is the explanation? Roscup says they were willing to face arrest, imprisonment, beatings, and horrible deaths, not one of them recanted of his belief that Christ had risen. Think of the psychological absurdity of attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world. That simply wouldn't make sense. So why would it not make sense? Think, if you and I were told to do it, would you and I do that? Would we go around telling people that somebody rose up from the dead? So we buried our friend the other day in the graveyard two days ago. Should we now go around and start telling the people actually the person is not down there, the person is, is alive? Have you ever tried to do that? Think of how unnerving that is to try to some, tell somebody else that somebody rose up from the dead. No, it is not easy to do that at all. So how come these disciples did that? Something happened. That is why they changed from being so frightened just a little while earlier to being so bold that nothing could silence them. We have to give an explanation that makes sense. And we can't give just an ordinary explanation saying that they just chose to do it. No, nobody chooses to do that. Nobody chooses to be persecuted. The fact is they were all persecuted for saying that. Nobody chooses to be chased here and there for just a statement they were making. You and I wouldn't do that. That's why it does not make sense to say that they just bluffed their way through. How about then the presence of the Christian church? When did it really start? Here's how they chose number 12 of the disciples because one of them had left, Judas had left the group, and now they were 11, they wanted to make it 12. So they were going to cast lots to choose who it would be. But they had to have criteria as to who they will put into that list, and here's what they said. Therefore all these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become witness with us of his resurrection. That is the start of the Christian church. You, the group that really started out, 
that group had to be able to do one thing, be a witness to the resurrection. If you wanted to talk about Jesus and how nice he was, well, that's the other club you join. If you want to talk about the fact that he did miracles of raising, you know, of hell helping the poor, of uh, calming the sea, then you join that club. If you want to talk about the teachings of Jesus, then join the other club. But if you want to join this club, which must start the Christian church, then there's only one single criterion. You should have been there all the time. You should be able to say that I saw him before and after the death of him. And so I am a witness of his resurrection. The witness of the resurrection was the starting point of the Christian church. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once disprove it and you have disposed of Christianity. Morris said the resurrection gave significance to all that they did. And Josh McDowell, he said the institution of the Christian church is a historical phenomenon explained only by Jesus' resurrection. Why? Listen to this. Jesus died a criminal, condemned one, by the highest religious authority, two, by the highest civil authority at that time in the world, Rome, and three, the greatest moral authority described in the Torah. The cause for the origin and rise of Christianity must be able to account for and overcome all three facts. Only a factual, scrutinized account of the resurrection can possibly account for all these three, so much so that a sharp, questioning Jew would choose to follow him by dropping the whole lifelong traditions, dropping their loyalty to the Sanhedrin, dropping their loyalty to the Torah and choose to follow this person. And the first few thousand followers were all Jews. So, when we look at the circumstances in which these people began to follow him, that is an indication on the positive side that something dramatic had happened and the only thing that we can think of at that time is the fact that somebody bodily rose up from the grave and he said so. Number two, eyewitnesses. Do you know that the New Testament, and we saw that earlier, is the only ancient writing in which the authors were actual eyewitnesses. Almost all the other historical pieces that we have of literature of the ancient days are written by somebody who got the report from somebody else. And only a portion maybe of it would have been what they themselves saw. Nobody ever wrote a complete story in which they themselves were the eyewitnesses except for this one story, the gospel regarding Jesus Christ. That's the only writing in which there are eyewitnesses. Look at the words. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He who has seen has testified. And look at 1 John 1, 1, which says, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, that is what we are writing down. The very kind of evidence which modern science and even psychologists are so insistent upon for determining the reality of any object under consideration is the kind of evidence that we have presented to us in the Gospels regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, namely, the things that are seen with the human eye, touched with the human hand, and heard by the human ear. This is what we call empirical evidence. 
an eyewitness who states today in a court of law that he saw such and such is to be believed at least with everyone who is a rational thinker. How about the third one, deathbed confessions? A deathbed confession of an eyewitness is one of the strongest forms of evidence to be tabled in a court of law today. If it is written down, it would amount to a sworn affidavit. If two or three such confessions can be found, they would amount to nearly unassailable testimony in a court of law. Few judges or juries in the world will overturn multiple deathbed confessions stating the same detail. Why do we accept that? Because at the point of death, most people, even hardened criminals, kind of soften up and they say, all right, I agree. I will tell you what I see and what happened. For example, suppose we go to a deathbed of an individual who is dying and we say, look, you were there, say, 20 years ago. You were there, so can you tell us really what happened? And he sighs, he's about to die, so he says, look, I cannot hold it anymore. For long, I have held it as a huge burden on my chest. I knew that the wrong person was in jail, but I could not bring myself to tell the truth. Now I am dying. I will tell you the truth. It was so-and-so. And the fact is, Mr. So-and-so was also there. And so we realize, oh, Mr. So-and-so is also in, same, in the same town. We rush over to the, end, the other end of town and we say, Sir, do you know what happened at that day? And he is also on his deathbed. And he says the same thing. I had a huge burden of load of guilt on my mind because I knew the wrong person was in jail. But now since I'm dying, I'll tell you. So and so, and he states the same person's name. And just suppose we went to the third one and he is also dying and he says the same name. Do you know? I don't think there will be any jury or judge in the world that will overturn this kind of deathbed confession of the same matter. So three or four are there, it almost settles the matter. How many do we have here? Number one, Peter was crucified upside down. Two, James was stoned to death. Three, Matthew was killed with a sword. Four, James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. Five, James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. Six, Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. Seven, Bartholomew was crucified. Eight, Andrew was crucified. Nine, Philip was crucified. Ten, Simon the Zealot was crucified. Eleven, Thomas was killed with a spear. Paul, number twelve, was beheaded. And not a single one ever recanted of his belief that Jesus had risen up from the grave. Not a single one. Just think about it. They were not killed at one time with one sweep. No, they were killed one and then a few months later the other and a few months later the other. They could have told them, look, look what happened to the other guy, we killed him. Now you tell the truth. How easy would it have been, my friends, to tell the truth and go home? Why would you die for a lie? How reasonable is that? You and I wouldn't do that. And so we should not thrust a lie onto those people who died for what they truly believed. Now you can die for what you were, you know, deceived to believe. You can die for a delusion that you had, but you cannot die for something that you know. 
Here we are saying, for example, that the disciples knew that they had buried Jesus in maybe Peter's backyard. How will they now be so bold to tell a lie and also die for it? If you and I were there, I am sure, at least me, I would have told them, Lay, don't kill me, go, the body is there. He didn't rise up. But not one of them did that. Every one of them said, you do whatever you want. I'm going to say he rose up from the dead. We'll beat you up. He rose up. We'll spit on your face. He rose up. We'll lash you. He rose. We'll put you in jail. He rose. We'll kill you. He rose up from the dead. I cannot go against my own conscience. I saw him alive before and after putting into the tomb. I saw him myself. How can I say anything but the truth of the matter? He rose up from the dead. And all of them died, one after the other, saying the same thing. My friends, deathbed confessions are strong. We must not reduce the strength of those statements. And if we are honest inquirers, remember what we said? We would give credit where credit is due. It is due here for the simple reason that they died for it. Nobody dies for known falsehood. So now, let's look at those others, not just you and me, who looked at the story and see what they say. Look at the word evidence as I go through the next few quotes. Look, I've bolded them so it'll be easy for you. Watch this. Westcott said, Indeed, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Henry Morris said, By all rules of evidence, his bodily resurrection from the grave can be adjudged the best proved fact of all history, of all ancient history. How about Thomas Arnold, the chairman of the Department of Modern History in Oxford University said this, Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up a most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others but to satisfy myself. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Arnold Toynbee wrote a big compendium on history. He called it the study of history. He devoted 80 pages to anyone who would call themselves savior. Savior of the world, savior of your nation, savior of your community, savior of your family, savior of your friend. If you called yourself a savior and he knew about it, he studied you out. And this is what he said at the end of his study. When we first set out on this quest, we found ourselves moving in the midst of a mighty marching host. In the last stage of all, our motley host of would-be saviors, human and divine, has dwindled to a single company of none but gods. At the final ordeal of death, few, even of these would-be savior gods, have dared to put their title to the test by plunging into the icy river of death. And now, as we stand and gaze with our eyes fixed upon the farther shore, a single figure rises from the flood of death and straightway fills the whole horizon. There is the Savior. 
the bones of Abraham and Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius and Lao Tzu and Zoroaster are still here on earth, Jesus' tomb is empty. It is the concrete, factual, empirical proof that life has hope and meaning. Love is stronger than death. Goodness and power are ultimately allies and not enemies. Life and not death wins in the end. God has touched us right here where we are and has defeated our last enemy. We are not cosmic orphans. How about this Lord Chief Justice of England? The claims of Jesus Christ, namely his resurrection, has led me as often as I have tried to examine the evidence to believe it as a fact beyond dispute. These are the words of Lord, Lord Caldicott, Chief Justice of England. Here's another one. I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. The words of Lord Lyndhurst, three times High Chancellor of England. These are not people who just wondered and just took a blind shot at what the story might have been. These people are people who went into the details of the story, studied them out, weighed them out. That's what they said. And here's another one. On that greatest point, we are not merely asked to have faith. In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence. The words again? overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Did you see all the times when they said that it was evidence? It was not blind belief. They've looked for those evidences. It was something that gripped them because it was evidentiary. It was evidence-based fact. So here, and that's what they claimed. That's what they said from their studies. So we also, when we looked, we looked at the pros and we looked at the cons. We looked at what the other alternative uh, theories might be. And we looked also for evidences that could have given us the real true story. That is what we mean by saying that we are actually inquirers. As inquirers, we will look at both sides, we'll look at all the evidence, and we'll give credit where credit is due. A thoroughgoing scientist may doubt the story of the resurrection, but will have no grounds to deny it. There's a difference between doubt and denial. Ordinarily, we would still doubt. We're not very, very exactly very sure, but here's what we can do with our doubt. We can take our doubt and ask whether the evidence clears the doubt or establishes it. In other words, what is the weight of evidence? That is how we started out our whole trip together, my friends. Our journey, the last 13 sessions, we started by saying that we will look for evidence not opinion. We will look for reason. We will look for logic. And when we do that through the whole series, we've come to a place where even something that is as unbelievable as a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, can have a certain amount of evidence. And if that evidence is the weight of evidence, then you and I should give it the credit that it is due. 
a fair inquirer will find enough evidence to make a reasonable claim that the resurrection story is true. It is the evidence that compels the fair and honest inquirer. So we go back to Socrates who said, go where the argument leads, go where the evidence leads. Don't pull the evidence and the argument to where you think it should go. Have I challenged you to think critically and to look at reports or claims or theories as an inquirer so that we look at both sides, so that we are sure that when we have finally done our study, that the correct side has the weight of evidence, that side wins the discussion. We've shown this. And so now we've come to the last question that we were asking in our series when I said we will go to the para-religious factors. These are not doctrinal matters, but can you see on this point, if the resurrection story is true, it is a stand that we can take as a doctrine, as a belief, as a philosophy that somebody rose up from the grave and therefore that individual, whoever rose up, has a credential that nobody else on earth has. So now we have finished these, uh, these topics. Let's look at the summary of the conclusions of our study now of these religions. Here is the summary. Number one, the New Testament is the best documented ancient writing in the world. It is solidly historical in nature. The gaps are the closest. It has the greatest manuscript evidence and the authors were right there. We saw the top feature of the writing, the endorsement that one author gave to the other. When he said that the Lord gave me the information, the Lord also gave him the information, maybe 500, even a thousand years earlier. Therefore, the Lord was the ultimate writer of the book. And if the Lord lived for 1400 years, well, that's absolutely impossible for a human to do. So it is beyond human capability. Number three about the Bible, it's, it is the only book that has an open test for authenticity. It fulfills its own test wonderfully clearly. What was the test? Predictive prophecy. It made predictions before it took place. And those predictions came true. Remember what Pere Simon Laplace said? If there's an intellect that could do it, then that intellect knows everything in the universe. And we found that maybe that was the intellect. He that ruleth in the heavens is that intellect who knows everything so he can predict the future. And we saw how clearly the predictions came true. What was the statistical possibility of having those number of predictions come true? Way beyond what we have as the total number of chance in the universe. And therefore, we can give it the credit where it is due. So look at the consistency of what we are seeing. The New Testament is the best attested historical literature. Its feature is beyond human capability and it is the only literature that says, yes, you can test me and test it by predictive prophecy. Number four, Jesus dared to make the highest claim, son of God. He did not just bring the truth, the way and the life. He claimed to be the truth, the way and the life. 
And Jesus, the only one whose life record matched his teachings perfectly, the only one with the right to say, follow me. Look at the consistency. He says, I am God. From there, the realm of God, he came to the human. Therefore, he brought the message in himself. And if he brought the message in himself, then he lived according to the message and we saw that was true. Number seven, he's the only founder to be born in abject poverty and worse, illegitimate. Number eight, Jesus by, had by far the shortest period of ministry. And number nine, the only founder to die the shameful, violent death of a condemned criminal. These three pull him down to the lowest point possible. But here comes the tenth. The only one to go into the domain of death, the most feared enemy of humankind, break those bands and come back as a conqueror over death. Why did he do that? He said why he did it. He said, if I live, you also will live. In other words, he did that so that he could tell us that he has a power stronger than death and it is that he has conquered it and because he conquered it, we also can have the hope of conquering death. So the final conclusion of what we've been doing all this while, we find that Jesus and the Bible are matchless in their claims. In other words, you put, pit the claims of Jesus and the Bible against the claims of any other founder and their writings and we'll find that they are simply matchless. Number two, they do have the highest credibility compared to any other claim on the face of this earth. And therefore, they provide to mankind, remember what we were looking, that red marble. What is the meaning of the red marble? It was the only way. We've come to the end, my friends. Reflect on what we have done. And may God bring you to the point in which you can see and have your life worth living. So I now, for the present, bid you adieu. If you have enjoyed this presentation with Dr. Subodh Pandit and wish to watch more of this unique 13-part series for free online, visit the website godfactorfiction.com. That's godfactorfiction.com. If you would like to order this fascinating series on DVD, it is now available from Whitehorse Media. To order from within the U.S., call 1-800-782-4253. Dr. Subodh Pandit has written two eye-opening books entitled, Come Search With Me, Does God Really Exist? and Come Search With Me, The Weight of Evidence, which further explore the topics of evolution, theism, atheism, and religion. To order these books from within the U.S., call 1-800-782-4253. That's 1-800-782-4253. If you live outside the U.S., you may also easily order them on Amazon.com.